Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast. We talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the uh, international editor for Adweek. And with me, as always, is Shannon Miller, the creative and inclusion editor here at Adweek. Shannon, how are you feeling? I am feeling all right. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, it is always a pleasure. It is uh, just one of our favorites to have on Kelsey Sutton, the uh, TV streaming editor here at Adweek, uh, our our person, our go-to person for all things streaming. And we have so much to talk about because uh, there's, just, there's just been a lot. There's a lot. Uh, and we are blessed to have you here, Kelsey. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I always have so much fun when I'm on the podcast. So thanks for inviting me back. And extra generous of you to come after after several days of Adweek's uh, Conversion TV Summit. Uh, tell us, uh, Kelsey, I, well, for one, congratulations, awesome event. And there were some really stellar uh, panels, discussions over these past few days. Uh, first, uh, tell me, I mean, I obviously know this, but let's just pretend I don't. What? How do we define Convergent TV? Uh, great question. Um, we define Convergent TV as there are sort of several convergences, convergencies happening <laughs> right now, which is uh, the convergence of linear television and streaming television. So we have, you know, sort of the traditional way of viewing TV and now the sort of new fangled way. Um, and then, but also, uh, and sort of all the problems and challenges and opportunities that come with that, right? Um, on demand versus live and uh, how do you program and who's, you know, who owns what and how is it distributed? But then there's also uh, the convergence of uh, sort of platforms and programmers, uh, which is another sort of interesting dynamic, um, right? We have um, smart TVs uh, and but they are getting into the content space and vice versa. We see companies like Amazon, which, you know, is kind of dabbling in both. So there's a lot of challenges and business opportunities that are present in that dynamic. And it is never a dull day. So I'm lucky to uh, always 
have something new uh, to write about and learn about, um, or in the case of the Convergent TV Summit, talk about, uh, which I just did at length for three days. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's put our cards on the table here. What are our personal like? What do you? What's your setup at home, Shannon, uh, in terms of streaming services or your, your what is your kind of core device? So, um, you know, everything kind of goes through my Sony Smart TV and it's kind of perpetually stuck on Netflix these days because I was just watching a lot of like sex education and I'm kind of brushing up on a few old documentaries. Um, by the way, I'm watching the Fire Festival documentary as an official Adweek employee is harrowing. Um, I don't know how y'all <laughs> survived that. Um, there was so much to dig into there. Um, but I, I tend to take occasional Hulu breaks when um, I can, since everything that is current is pretty much between those two platforms. Nice. Uh, what about you, Kelsey? Like, what's your 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 main your main device? So I have the Vizio uh, smart TV in my house, um, and that's where I watch most of my content. Because I am the streaming editor, I have a lot of streaming services. <laughs> um, so I have Netflix, I have HBO Max, I have Hulu, I have Disney+. Plus. Um, what am I forgetting? I have Apple TV+. Plus. I'm like Paramount. I yep. I have Paramount Plus. <laughs> <laughs> no, I is, is is there still a Discovery Plus? That one still th- there is a Discovery Plus. My uh, boyfriend's sister has Discovery Plus. So look, we all share the wealth around here because that's a <laughs> lot of streaming services and a lot of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so much content, so little time. Um, but sometimes I'm also just you know I just watch a show on my iPad. You know I don't even. But again, Vizio knows what I'm watching, right? If I'm watching it through that. So that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. I, I've showed my cards. I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm like kind of surprised that you're both using smart TVs. Like I, maybe it's a personal, maybe I just had a bad brush with them. Uh, but I, as bad as all streaming interfaces is, which we live we don't even have time to get into like a whole separate conversation about the, the UX, uh, "Quote unquote choices that have been made around streaming services, uh, I find that the TVs were those smart TVs were so bad when I tried them early on that mm-hmm. I always used a Roku or now we're, we're using a Amazon Fire, um, which it, I don't love. Uh, but yeah, no, so that's kind of interesting that y'all are actually using, you know, the the TVs itself. Um, well, and so Kelsey, uh, summarizing, admittedly, several days of conversations." What were kind of the big themes? What are people within this space really thinking about right now? I feel like the last time we had you on, or maybe one of the last times we had you on, it was really this kind of like, it felt like we were just reaching this chaos pinnacle of streaming, <laughs> of like all things plus coming out at the same time. And a lot of question marks about, uh, I, I think we did have a separate conversation about how HBO Max kind of came into its own as a bit of a, a surprise uh, win in terms of a, a pretty well beloved uh, service, but like, what were the themes of what everybody was talking about? I'm going to sort of divvy it up into two big buckets, and this is not going to cover everything because, again, it was three days. We did have a lot of conversations, but I think there's like a content part of the conversation that's happening, and then there is like a measurement um, and understanding how audiences are watching that content sort of conversation. And 
Um, I think that, you know, on the content side, I finished up uh, the the event, uh, which wrapped on Thursday, uh, with a conversation about churn. And that sort of, you know, the way that you keep people coming back to your subscription streaming service day in and day out, month after month, and of course they're paying month after month to come back, is with content largely, right? You have to have, con- you have to market good content, but you can't market nothing. So you have to have good shows that get people talking, that get people coming in. You have to come up with ways to program it so that people build habits and come back. So that question about how do we make the best shows that are satisfying all of these different types of programming tastes and these different tastes throughout the year, right? Because what I want to watch in October, spooky season, is very different than what I want to watch in May, right? So there's like this whole... There's so many questions happening there. And um, on on Wednesday, uh, Casey Bloys, who's the chief content officer of HBO and HBO Max, we sat down and talked about, like, how do you build a, you know, a business that encourages that creativity? Because, again, it all comes down to telling good stories and getting people to come uh, and pay month after month and watch your shows. But then on the other side of it is actually understanding how are people watching your shows Um, And that can be as simple as kind of the challenges um, that have happened with Nielsen uh, becoming de-accredited. And that gets a little weedier, right? But everybody has to know how people are watching because you can't make good decisions if you don't know that. And advertisers want to know because they don't want to put their ads on a show and have no idea who's watching it or when they're watching it or if that ad worked. So there are all of these really interesting pieces. And it just, I think it always comes back at the end of the day to those like two big, big issues. And it's just, I mean, it's not an easy answer and it's always changing, but they can almost like feed into one another, right? Because you don't want to... to have this big, great show, and if nobody watches it, okay, well, or you don't know if they watched it, okay, well, how do you know that that was a success? <laughs> so it's just, I mean, it's a, I, I love my job, if you cannot tell. I like, it's such a great time to be, you know, writing about TV and, and learning about it. There, there is one show that I, I've been dying to talk to you about, um, and it is not one that people probably are going to see coming, but I think it is. It is kind of the perfect case study in the weird reality that we're in right now of streaming. We'll talk about the other shows, but I'm not talking about Squid Game and I'm not talking about Ted Lasso. I'm talking about a show that was first on network television and then I saw it on Netflix. And when Spooky Season rolled around, I wanted to show it to my wife because I loved it, but she didn't get to watch it with me. And I went to pull it up and it is no longer on Netflix do you know what show I'm talking about, Kelsey, and where it ended up? <laughs> there are so many spooky season shows that you could be talking about. <laughs> I will Shannon, give you a hint. We wrote, do you we have wrote any an idea? entire we wrote an entire article about this one. Oh, what? Recently? Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. It is. It is evil. Oh my gosh. Really? Yeah. So when I went to watch Evil, it was gone. 
because it is now on Paramount Plus. Oh, no. It sure is. And I have a and, I have a friend who borrows my Paramount Plus login all the time because she loves evil. It's a good show. I, it is a good show and I was like I, when I pulled it up, I was so excited because my wife's like, what's evil? That looks interesting. So I, w- I go to pull it up and I was like, oh, it is really good. I've been meaning to like watch it with you. October's a perfect you know, time. And I pull it up and I was like, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on Paramount Plus. I was like, I have so many streaming services. It's frustrating. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I got on. I mean, OK, I broke down and got on Apple Plus a few days ago. Uh, I mean, not a few, a few weeks ago to start to watch Ted Lasso, binge through that. And I'm like, I'm checking out some other stuff because they got me right. They got their hooks in me now that I'm like uh, paying the the five bucks or whatever a month. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, sure. While I'm here, might as well see what else. But then that one. And so I was just like, oh, what a good play. And But you know what I mean, Kelsey, that that feels like a that is a a quote unquote network show that probably found an even larger audience or at least a, a greatly expanded audience on Netflix. And then, you know, when October comes around, you really want to watch it. I, I believe there's two seasons now um, and they, they get their hooks in you to get you over to Paramount Plus. And Griner, I'm so glad you brought this up because George Cheeks, who's the president and CEO of CBS, and he also is the chief content content officer of news and sports at Paramount Plus. He literally talked about this at the Convergent TV Summit So the fact that they sent it to Netflix, it was on Netflix for one year, was super intentional because they, Evil wasn't doing super well on linear TV. And they were like, we know this is a good show. We know that it was really critically acclaimed, um, but it just didn't have that stickiness on linear TV, which of course, like people who watch linear TV are generally older and mm-hmm. they love franchises. So sometimes taking a swing with a show that might be a little less conventional can be a little bit of a risk. But they knew they had something good. So they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give it to Netflix for one year. We're going to license it out for one year. We're going to see, is there a big streaming audience? And of course there was because Griner watched it 500 times. <laughs> um, it's just but- me. Just me back Firing up five different devices. Um, But, right, it did really well on Netflix. And so they said, okay, you know where we should move it? We should move it to our new streaming service. So they moved it over to Paramount Plus. And now now it's a Paramount Plus exclusive. So there's going to be a third season that's in the works. And it will be exclusive to that streaming service. So that's the thing that's so interesting, right? Because, like, there's we now live in a world where a show like Evil – can exist somewhere else, whereas it may have just, if it we lived in a world without streaming, it may have just been canceled because yeah. it just wasn't doing the numbers that it needed to do. So truly the golden age of television. And you're right, Griner, it's such a spooky season kind of show. Paramount Plus is such an interesting, interesting platform. Um, just because, first of all, um, in terms of its interface, you know, I'm going to give it like the year one pass. Like they'll figure themselves out eventually and make it hopefully far better than what it is. Cause it's very is a- charitable of you. Shannon. <laughs> I, yeah, I- I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to hang in there off of the strength of 
<laughs> the iCarly reboot, which is amazing <laughs> and weird and something I didn't know that I needed. But it Paramount Plus has found a really um, interesting way of tapping into so like, sort of like not older – well, yeah, older nostalgic audiences because they also have the um, – like – not the challenge, but they had the challenge all stars, which was um, where all of like the original players from like season one, real world, season two, real world and road rules were playing um, with all of their sciatica and all of their back problems. And it was the best show I'd seen all year because it tapped into um, something that I just wasn't getting from MTV. And they just have a really um, unique way of tapping into that nostalgia that some of those properties are really, really good. Um, you just, you just that, have to deal with a very frustrating interface. That nostalgia is so powerful, too, because we saw that when Disney Plus first arrived, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they had one – they had a couple – originals but they had one really big original but this i'm talking about november 2019 but they just they built off of the the nostalgia people said oh i want to watch this movie that i haven't seen for you know 20 years i want to watch you know bambi or snow white or something and Mm -hmm. it's interesting because paramount plus does have all of these old uh reality franchises that you know tapping into that you know, that is really, it's really powerful because people go, oh, I remember this person. Oh my gosh, I remember watching this season of Survivor or, mm-hmm. you know, what have you, right? That can be, Discovery Plus is doing that same thing. You know, you can go back and watch the very first season of 90 Day Fiance or Diners, uh, uh, Drive-Ins and Dives. Did I mess that up? But you know what I mean, right? <laughs> like there's that, that sort of IP can be really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. The, um, you know, it, it's fascinating to me, and we talked about this last time that uh, we talked about HBO Max, is that it's wild to me how you would think these things kind of have enduring permanence of like which streaming services are most important to you and that you would never do away with. And for, for I think for a lot of us, Netflix was that for a while, right? That like, it was kind of the only game in town uh, for for real comprehensive streaming options. But then, and then when Disney Plus came out, and I was just like, "Oh, Disney Plus! It's got, when would we ever not want this?" You know, with kids in the house and stuff. And I would say Disney Plus is like at the top, top of our chopping block right now. Uh, you know, once mm. they wrapped up uh, their shows, their big shows uh, with uh, Loki and and uh, uh, WandaVision and um, uh, what, what was the one that just ended? Um, I'm, I'm suddenly blanking on what that. if like, or yeah, the what, Falcon what and if. the Winter Soldier. Yeah, it's like once those wrapped up and there wasn't really a reason to come back to it every week. And and uh, uh, candidly, also when it was announced that Disney had can- canceled the Owl House, big big favorite in the Griner household. Um, <laughs> Caused some like, waves. <laughs> yeah, no, my kids, my kids were just like, Disney, go to hell. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it's kind of interesting that when we have these conversations every once in a while, the answer, and I'm not picking on Disney Plus specifically, I'm just saying that like month to month, the answer is different. You mm-hmm. know, and like right now, I uh, like I do think after we burn through kind of the core Apple Plus stuff, I'm not sure I'll stick around. I don't think there's so many on there that I'm just like, it, it's kind of where HBO was a while ago where I'm like, yeah, Ted Lasso was good. I might come back for season three. Um, 
but you know, in terms of like what's keeping keeping me locked in. But I feel like that's a good transition to kind of talk about the the nature of these home run shows, right? And each each streaming service they hope has had at least one home run, but we've had some real just through the roof hits in the last few months, just since the last time we talked. I guess let's start with Ted Lasso and just obviously Apple Plus mega breakout hit for them. I mean, am I am I correct, Kelsey, in saying that that's been Apple Plus's big breakout hit, or did they have another one that was bigger than this? I think that's totally fair because I think that what Apple TV Plus wanted to do when they first went out the gate in November 2019 was they had the morning show. They were like, we have Jennifer Aniston mm-hmm. and Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell. This is going to be great. And it was good, but it didn't really have the sort of cultural impact that Ted Lasso has had. And it was interesting because when Ted Lasso came out last year, it was sort of like a it was like a quiet build. It mm-hmm. wasn't, right? Because it is, it was a new show, a new franchise you know franchise i'm but right it was it was not known um to the audience and then it just found it scratched that itch and of course you know they walked away from emmy season with four trophies including apple tv plus's first series win for outstanding comedy so it was really big for apple tv plus because like uh you know griner mentioned you have to have those sorts of things just push you forward and re- and keep somebody maybe coming back, even if they don't stay all year, they come back for the season three of Ted Lasso. And maybe when they come back for season three, that's when they find something else and they stick around for longer. So like mm-hmm. you have to have those sort of hits. Shannon, have you watched Ted Lasso? What are your thoughts? I'd love to know. Because I think about it as like they really are so earnest. It's like kind of zigging where a lot of other shows are zagging, right? Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. dry, um, uh, sarcastic comedies or kind of dark comedies. And Ted Lasso is sort of the opposite of that. You know, it's like goodness prevails. <laughs> yes. <laughs> abso- yeah, absolutely. Like there are just some really earnest moments in Ted Lasso that really set it apart. Um, and I, I, I'm not one of the like, I'm not part of like the fervent, fervent fan base that's like Ted Lasso or Die, um, but I I do really enjoy the show. I am definitely behind, um, but I think it is one of the better ensembles that I've witnessed this year, and it kind of scratches um, a same itch, like an itch that I've had since um, Shit's Creek ended, um, where it's just like these really nice, meaty, feel-good moments. Um, but it's like indicative, I think, of where, what Apple, <laughs> there's something that Apple TV Plus was trying to do, trying to do, and then there was something that it did, because you were absolutely hitting the nail on the head. They really banked on the morning show, but they really have a great comedy slate. Like, that's probably where their bread and butter should be. Um, Mythic, yeah, Mythic Quest is the oh, other so funny yeah is so so good and so underrated it just doesn't get quite as much buzz as ted lasso nor does dickinson um and and central park is getting there um it, it's better that i like it better season two than i did season one but they really hit a good stride with their comedies uh, with ted lasso leaving the way leading the way i feel like once Ted Lasso ends, I'm hoping that 
that audience gives the other comedies a shot. I love that point because a lot of these platforms, they want like the prestige drama, like they want the Emmy win of like best drama, but like Mm -hmm. not everybody could have the best drama on TV and (laughs) not everybody wants to watch like dreadful like show after dreadful show you know so like having those lighter shows are so important for like a well-rounded slate while we're in the middle of a panoramic no one wants to deal (laughs) with that right now at least i don't yeah and and this is what is of course so funny about the other mega hit show right (laughs) it's like you've got the world is like you know what this Ted Lasso show is so great and America just needs or the world just needs one big hug and all this. And then it's like, meanwhile, Netflix <laughs> sets all time viewership records with a show about people just being murdered on their knees. You know? and you're just like, huh, we are a complicated species. Um, but so so let's talk Squid Game. Um, I, I will say that I just because of the nature of the show as a parent, I'm like slowly grinding through it, but I kind of have to watch it when like one of my kids is old enough, the other's not. And so, and then we also are kind of in that weird situation of like, don't get too far ahead of me. I want to watch it, you know? So I'm probably like four episodes in, um, but I certainly get it. I certainly get why people enjoy it. I think the, the writing, the characters, of course, the just freakiness of it. It's not as, um, it's not as horrible as I expected uh, just be in that same way that d- I doubt any of you, uh, you're, you're both probably uh, like, not say like you're super younger than me, but I do remember the first time I heard the plot summary of Hunger Games and I was like, Jesus, that sounds horrible. <laughs> like child- children murder each other for entertainment. And you're just like, they that, and, pe- and millions of people are reading this book like it's a it's a book club favorite um and then of course we see it and it's like well i mean yeah they murder each other but not like super bloody um and there are so also some way, nice like, moments you know <laughs> <laughs> there's some there's some love interest and in this one i'm just like yeah i just kind of went into it being like wow that sounds and it is is bloody it's i am oh, not yeah. downplaying it but i do think it there's an intellectual backbone of course <laughs> that a lot of people have talked about the metaphors for capital capitalism and just like the uh, just the absolute horrible way that people are exploited uh, in debt and things like that. But Kelsey, I'm just I've been waiting to ask you this. Why? Why Squid Game? Why is it the number one hit of all time on Netflix? Uh, Well, this is the thing. I don't even think that Netflix executives could tell you the answer to that question, because this is like no one. I mean, 111 million Netflix households have watched some of Squid Game, which is kind of astonishing. But they, I don't think that Netflix thought it was going to be this big. And the reason I think this is because there wasn't a really big marketing effort around it. There wasn't, it sort of quietly snuck up on us, sort of like Ted Lasso, right? But it's sort of, it's just the snowball rolling down the hill, right? It gets a little bit of traction, more people hear about it, more people talk about it, and it, you know, continues until you hit 111 million. But the thing I do want to say is that that 111 million number means that you have watched two minutes of it. 
That's when Netflix counts that as a view. So, so I yeah. presume there are some people who watched two minutes of Squid Game and went, this is too bloody. <laughs> and uh, and hit the... Well, I, think, s- I think episode one takes like 45 minutes to get to the violence. To the blood. Yeah. So maybe yeah. after that. But do you know what I mean? Like, that's not... It's kind of a... It's. I just like to say that when I provide yeah. that sort of metric because... It is a big number, and it's big compared to other Netflix numbers that use that same yardstick, but it's just, it's a good context to know. I'm sure that, you know, I mean, I have not watched Squid Game. I, I'm very squeamish, and so I'm a little hesitant <laughs> to, to tune in. I've also been binge-watching Succession, but that's a different, you know, conversation. But, you know, I so I just, but sometimes things just hit, you know, they scratch an itch or people are just looking for something to be a part of something. And TV still does that. So if you watch Squid Game and you're able to talk about it or you see jokes about it or, you know, essays about it or whatever, you get to be a part of that conversation and a part of that community. And I think that that is a really powerful force in culture, right? So mm-hmm. are you even liking it as you're watching it? No, but are you part part of something and does that make you feel good yes (laughs) and that can be a really powerful thing this was my big question with the with sort of netflix's narrative on this show first of all i don't doubt that the number is true because i know nothing about anyone um including close friends other than their thoughts on squid game because no one's talked about (laughs) anything else for three damn weeks um which is fine because i the few episodes i've seen i have thoroughly enjoyed um But whenever Netflix sort of pushes this narrative, whenever a show gets big, we we saw the same thing with Bridgerton. Um, We saw the same thing really early, early, early on with Orange is the New Black. It's they sort of release these metrics in spurts. And it's so hard to contextualize it when there is so little transparency um, regarding the rest of it. Like 101 million an astonishing number by any measure. It's just very difficult to really put that in the context of the rest of their library when they're so hush-hush on the rest of their numbers. I remember like a year ago, it may have been longer, that they had released a, a statement saying that they were going to be a little bit more transparent with some of their traffic um, findings. I don't know if we've really seen the fruits of that. Do you think we're any closer to having um, Netflix and maybe other streaming services, maybe other streaming services are just as sort of evasive um, or rather elusive when it comes to this. Do you you think we're any closer to Netflix releasing those numbers a little bit more often? I think that as long as they don't have ads – it's unlikely. And the reason that I say mm. that is because they have a lot of um, – they have internal metrics. We know that they do, right? And they share them in sort of when it suits them. Right. Um, what we do have that is helpful is there is they, – they do put out a top 10 list um, every day just in the interface. So you can see what's most popular – in your region. So if I open it up, it says top 10 in the US, and then I can see the top 10 movies in the US or the mm-hmm. top 10 TV shows. That helps you compare Netflix shows against Netflix shows. 
but it's less helpful kind of outside of Netflix. But if because Netflix isn't beholden to advertisers, right, like there's not really an incentive, I think, for them. The only problem, I think, or, or challenge that I, I think is, is uh, present is people who create shows want to know how their show is doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they get the, you know, there's the deal at the outset, whatever, but they do want to know who's watching my show. Did I, you know, was there success? And there are other services that have this same issue. I remember going to, this was, I guess it was a little, a year and a half ago, but, um, at the, uh, winter press tour right before the pandemic. So early 2020, um, the, stars of the morning show were talking about how they didn't really know how the show was was doing because mm. that wasn't really information that Apple TV plus you know shared so but you know you just they keep their cards close to their chest I think there there may be a tipping point but I don't know when because I don't know who would force that tip you know what I mean right. So it is, yeah, we we don't totally know, but but it is, and again, again, it's, we don't totally know, and we don't totally know why some shows just do amazing, and some shows just don't, you know, it's sort of like the magic of, and the frustration of the business, right, because mm-hmm. there's not a magic formula. On that note, I think we should end by uh, talking two things. One is Outlook uh, for where things are headed uh, as it's it's very tough to have this part of the conversation because of the timing of when we record this podcast going into the weekend and releasing early in the week is uh, there is the potential for a production strike in Hollywood. Uh, the IATSE union uh, that handles the uh, you know, the contracts for production crews on TV in Hollywood. And uh, there's been a, a lot of coverage out there. You can certainly find uh, both on Adweek and elsewhere about the issues behind that strike uh, and basically how difficult life has become on production. I've personally seen a lot of uh, stories from people who work in production just working incredibly long days uh, for, you know, relatively low pay compared to especially their executives. Um, and, you know, they just feel a lot of them feel it's reached a point where it's it's not only um, not to their benefit, it's it's practically unsafe uh, sometimes for how many hours they're working and how much – because there is – we're in the middle of a content explosion as we've talked about. Kelsey, what can you tell us about kind of what this means? Uh, like what, what would a strike, an IOC strike mean? This, this is something that hasn't happened uh, – period. So like what what would it what would it mean for the industry? Yeah, so at the time that you were listening to this, <laughs> dear listener, it it uh, the deadline for a strike to happen or a deal to be reached will have uh, just passed, but um if a strike happens, uh that basically means that 60,000 crew members uh that belong to IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, will walk off the job. So Cinematographers, costumers, editors, set builders, prop makers, grips, hairstylists, you name it, gone. They're not at work. And what does that mean? You cannot make a TV show without those people. (laughs) And you can't make a movie without those people. So that basically will bring Hollywood to a standstill if that happens. And it's happening at a really interesting time, which is, as uh, you said, it's, you know, there's this this rush of production that's happening. But there's also the backlog of all the production that was delayed because of the pandemic and shutdowns. So we're sort of just reaching 
pre-pandemic levels of production, which is like, oh, thank goodness for the studios, you know, for distributors, et cetera. And then it could come to a grinding, to a grinding halt again. Um, now, the reason that they're doing this, of course, is because those members want more, they want better working conditions, they want more pay, especially if they're working on streaming service uh, productions. Um, so a compromise has to be reached. Uh, or, and and if it doesn't, and if you're listening to this Monday and, and the strike has occurred, it'll be the first, um, and the bi- actually the biggest strike since the 2007 writer strike. So... And and as you may remember from that, that caused a lot of disruption in the industry, which is sort of the point. So <laughs> we will have to see, but but there's gonna be a lot of contingency plans, or everyone will be breathing a big sigh of relief if uh, an agreement is reached before uh, before the strike does happen, um, as it is sort of slated to. If if not. Yeah, and I, and I should clarify, since this is an advertising podcast, uh, commercial production has a separate set. They do work through IOTC members, uh, but they have a separate contract uh, than the TV shows and movies. Uh, so there's it is unlikely that it would stop commercial production. Uh, there is always the chance of a solidarity strike and a few other implications. We will be covering that. Of course, if the strike moves forward, uh, there will probably be several stories on Adweek. Uh, so if you're curious about the advertising impact, um, my hope would be that if they do go on strike, that uh, commercial production gives those folks some paying work, uh, and that's that's uh, you know gives them a way to pad this time. But we shall see. Um, the other thing is, I just wanted to end on a fun note of sharing some shows, uh, you know, one show from each of us that you would like people to check out that maybe they have not checked out. Kelsey, is there a kind of sleeper hit uh, beyond kind of the big name stuff we've talked about, one that you th- you wish more people would check out? So I did mention I have been binge watching Succession in advance of Sunday night, uh, which is the season premiere. Um, that's not a sleeper hit. That is a bonafide hit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you have not heard of Succession, I you have been living under a rock, um, which Honestly, good for you. Um, but I, so I have been watching that. Something that I have started watching, um, and this might be sort of out of left field, but I have been rewatching a show that is near and dear to my heart uh, for Spooky Season, which is a children's show called Gravity Falls. <laughs> um, Yay. And and wonderful show. It's a wonderful show, and it's sort of set in summer, but it's very spooky. And Alex Hirsch is the creator and is working on a show that will soon be on uh, Netflix. And I am blanking on the name um, right now, but it's sort of X-Files inspired. And one of the um, people who worked on Gravity Falls is she is the sort of creator um, of that show. Um, But I'm really, really looking forward to that. So I'm rewatching Gravity Falls for a spooky season and um, looking forward to that show um, that will be on Netflix. And, and that's one of those shows when I was a kid, I wished there were more of these, like in that vein of Lost or, well, what Lost could have been, I guess. is shows that actually do kind of build on a premise. It's not, it's not so episodic. I mean, it's kind of episodic, but it's building toward, you know, one big uh, kind of 
borderline cataclysmic event. And I, I love shows like that. Like, there's not enough kids shows that do that. I think too many kids shows are like Phineas and Ferb, right? Where it's just like, anyway, let's forget everything that happened in the last episode and just mm-hmm. go through these motions again. Gravity Falls, is there's a lot. There's a lot of hidden stuff in there. There's, I mean, it is a rich show. Mm-hmm. And I, I just started watching it over my kids' shoulders. And then it, I did that thing where you just kind of sit down like, so wait, so what's going on? Who's the triangle? What's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do, I want to just say the show that's going to be on Netflix is called Inside Job. And it's sort of like X-Files, but also like it's an office comedy. So, um, but yes, you're re- so right. It's like one of those shows that is kind of built for rewatching because there's a lot of material and not a lot of children's shows, <laughs> I think, can say that. Uh, Shannon, what's your, your show everybody should watch? Um, I actually have two that are spooky season adjacent. Um, when I mentioned earlier that I take Hulu breaks, I take Hulu breaks for the comedy um, Only Murders in the Building. So good, Shannon. So, I'm so happy that you brought this up. Oh, it is so wonderful. And it's just such a reminder of why Steve Martin and Martin Short are just absolute legends. And I never really checked for Selena Gomez um, just because, like, her rise to fame kind of came um, when I was just kind of like too old to really appreciate it. But it is just such an amazing show about like these true crime fanatics trying to figure out um, what happened in their building when when one of the tenants, Tim Kono, is murdered. And it is so funny and it is just so wonderful and visually stunning. So um, you definitely want to check that out. And the other show that I am begging everybody to watch, and I may have mentioned it on the last um, the last time that we spoke, but I cannot remember. But on Netflix, it is technically a kid's show. It is called City of Ghosts. It is made by, um, oh goodness, what is her name? Um, she worked on Adventure Time, and her first name is Elizabeth. Um, but she worked on this really special animated series that is about um, these stories that make up L.A. So they're these deeply... Um, they're like these deeply historic stories about like the history of LA. So it talks about um, these communities that were once occupied mostly by Japanese um, folks and Japanese American folks. Um, It talks about the native indigenous land and it sort of distills it for children in a way that is so pleasing and also does not talk down to them. And it is just so beautiful and so well done. And I just really want everyone to watch it. It's such a quick binge, six episodes. And then we just need to like flood the Netflix offices and tell them to make more. So yeah. I might watch that tonight, Shannon. What a good recommendation. It's so great. And you have to tell me what you think of it. Uh, I'm going to throw in, I'll, I'll do two as well, mostly because one of them will take you like five minutes to watch the entire thing. Shannon can probably guess what quick moving show on Netflix that just dropped a second season I'm going to recommend I sure can <laughs> it is the way of the house husband it's so good um Kelsey have you ever heard of this I okay I have heard about this and I have not seen it but I'm sort of dying to see it <laughs> so, I mean like I said you'll knock out season one in like one evening 45 it's, minutes it is, tops <laughs> it took yeah, us 45 it minutes a, to watch 
It's a fast moving show. I like we tore through it, not realizing it was a relatively small run. It's an anime. It is not an anime, though. Like it is just it is in the style of anime. It is it is one of the weirdest. It is, uh, I, I guess, without giving any way more than I absolutely have to. It is about a former Yakuza boss who becomes a house husband, like settles down and just becomes like a domestic, uh, you know, just doing stuff at home and then posting it on Instagram. And uh, like other than the Yakuza background, I identify with him quite a lot, maybe scarily a lot. And um, yeah, it is just a lovably bizarre show and just goes in the weird and you you, you're not going to get all the gags or jokes and that's fine. It moves so fast that you Mm -hmm. don't have to. (laughs) I have not watched season two. I just saw there's new episodes and I'm very, I'm very excited. Um, the other one, and I was trying to quickly remember where it is because again, I get I get confused across streaming platforms. Over the Garden Wall. Mm. Uh, oh my gosh! It... Perfect spooky season, and honestly, yeah. adjacent same sort of vibe as Gravity Falls, I would say, or sort of adjacent. Yeah, it's um, Over the Garden Wall was a Cartoon Network uh, one season one off kind of show. Um, I have a feeling I've never looked it up. I have a feeling I know that they do these kind of like these little workshops where people like pitch ideas and then they just kind of build them out and move on. Um, but it's, uh, it's got quite a few celebrities. I'm not even going to tell you who the celebrities are. Cause that's half the fun is trying to guess who some of these voices are before you look them up. They're not the usual, the necessarily the usual suspects of, of kind of celebrity voice actors. Uh, but it is just a show about two, uh, half brothers, step brothers. And, uh, they're just, I don't know, walking through this very mysterious, weird, uh, it's, I would say it's fine for kids who are maybe like, I mean, every kid's different, but I would say like nine, eight or nine and up, it's probably fine. It's a little creepy. It's quite creepy in parts. Um, it's so good. It's It's so beautiful. Oh, it's, it's funny and silly and beautiful. And fun fact, Patrick McHale, who's the artist and creator, um, is, Working on two things. One, Guillermo del Toro is uh, making a stop motion adaptation of Pinocchio and uh, Patrick McHale is co-writing the script. And also Patrick McHale is the scriptwriter for an animated adaptation of Redwall, which is that fantasy novel about mice. (laughs) Uh, And so we will be seeing more of Patrick McHale uh, wherever you may, uh, wherever you choose to to see him in a theater or on Netflix. I I believe that one is on uh, Hulu, but uh, apologies if it's not. Like I said, it's we kind of bounce between every service. Um, But yeah, Over the Garden Wall, very good watch. I'm glad Kelsey's aware of it and uh, knows even more than I do. I just my kids turn, you know, pointed me to it. And I had so much fun uh, watching that. So check it out. Check it out in October uh, and check out Way of the House Husband. Well, this has been so much fun and super informative. Kelsey is truly just one of those people I could talk to for hours. And I get to because we work together. But uh, the rest of you uh, suckers have to just live with catching her once, you know, once every few months on the podcast. (laughs) Kelsey, thank you so much for coming on to join us. I have a huge smile on my face. I always have so much fun with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been so great. And Shannon, thank you. As always, you are a font of great recommendations. Uh, And uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing all your insights as well. Well, I love being here. Shout out to Elizabeth Ito. That is the creator of 
um, City of Ghosts. I want to make sure I say her full name and do right by her. But such an amazing thing. And also when you're done with um, Way of the House Husband, watch Ingenuity of the House Husband, which is the live action uh compliment to that show yeah I, I i for i for some reason couldn't make it through that but maybe it's just because again i am deeply nerdy about domestic craft <laughs> so i'm like listen i know how to do that. <laughs> yeah it's like, nothing new for you <laughs> yeah i was just like who doesn't know how to? yeah so no it is it is fascinating to see because watching that show uh, again without giving much away there's just some really beautiful like some really captivating things where you're just like, I want to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to know how to make that. Uh, and then I, I loved that they created a, a kind of quasi spinoff just to explain how to make those things in real life. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Great recommendation. All right. Well, we're out of time. Uh, our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibney. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, you can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.